and welcome to The Fickle Sickle, the podcast show that examines the development of the Russian Revolution through the lens of why and result. I'm your host, Grace Kite, and on today's episode, we will be talking about the emancipation of the serfs as well as Bloody Sunday. First, we'll talk about the emancipation of the serfs. However, in order to do this, we need to know a little bit about who the serfs were. Serfs were essentially enslaved people who were not represented in government. While they weren't technically considered slaves, they were still bound to their masters and had no land, money, or rights of their own. They were forced to work long hours with tedious conditions like students trying to do homework while in quarantine. Yay! No. A more accurate comparison would be to the blacks living in America during the time of Reconstruction. While legally they were free, they were still oppressed and societally enslaved. They didn't have the resources to look for other work or try to escape, so instead they were stuck perpetually in a state of freedom slash enslavement, due mainly to economic distress and class issues. Now, in the mid-1800s, Tsar Alexander II basically was like, oh, this is happening in my country. Maybe I should do something. And started making speeches in 1858 so people would, you know, come around to the idea of not enslaving fellow human beings. He didn't want it to be tough on them. What a nice Tsar. Wish more world leaders were like him. Finally, in 1861, the edict emancipating the serfs was released. However, it was only partial emancipation for the serfs. Like the Emancipation Proclamation, there were catches, one of these being that only state serfs were freed. Private serfs wouldn't be freed until 1866. So, as just a little background before we get into discussing the impact the edict had on Russia, We need to know a little bit about the Crimean War and Russia's role in it in order to fully comprehend the mindset of Russians at the time the edict was released. The Crimean War took place in March of 1856, a couple years before Tsar Alexander II graciously began talks of the emancipation. It was fought between Russia, the Ottoman Empire, France, the UK, and Sardinia. Russia performed very badly, so the government wanted to industrialize so it could make it more of a power capital, thus ensuring it wouldn't lose as embarrassingly again. Because of this, Russia was looking for reforms to fix their lack of industrialization, such as the emancipation of the serfs. And we'll get into how the serfs helped achieve this later, but right now it seems we have a question. Um, hi, yes, big fan of the show, such a great show. But, um, you mean to tell me that Tsar Alexander actually didn't want serfs to be emancipated, but it's just an economic proposition? Yes, unfortunately it was. This, is, you will see, is kind of a common theme in history, as tragic as it is. Anyway, back to the show. So, at first, Alexander II's priority was still with the war, as we discussed, but later he set up a committee to examine emancipation before actually doing it. 
However, provincial nobles got a lot of money from the serfs, and therefore struggled with agreeing on the measures of the emancipation. However, as we know, in 1861, the edict was published. So let's discuss the edict a bit. What did it mean? What was its impact? What did it actually do? Firstly, the measures. Under the edict, the serfs were now considered free. As we will discuss, again, there were caveats, but they were free from their owners. Now they could marry whomever they wanted, own property, have a business, travel, and had legal rights. All of those things they were not able to do, being tied to their masters. In addition, each serf was given a cottage and a plot of land. While this might seem nice, landowners still owned personal land, meadows, pastures, and woods. Still, this was better than nothing. However, as another parallel to the Reconstruction, since the fields weren't really theirs, it was hard to own a business. Along with these new measures given to the serfs, the government also gave nobles money, so they'd become more accustomed to the idea and to make up for lost revenue. On top of this, serfs were required to pay 49 annual payments to landowners to compensate for their struggle with no longer having free manual labor that they exploited. And the serf labor service, the Brooks, remained for two years after the edict was published. Now, let's talk about how the edict was received and the overall significance of the edict. As we know, Russia was in debt from the Crimean War, which they lost horribly. Now that the serfs were free, the serfs could buy land and help the economy grow. There was also an increase in industrialization as more people moved to cities and grew the towns that they were in. This furthers industrial output and again helps the economy. Britain, France, and the UK were all industrializing, so this also helped Russia not fall behind. And then, as a further benefit, the landowners could use the money that they received as compensation to pay off their debts, and yes, you guessed it, further the economy. And before you ask, yes, this was about money, not lives. And finally, problems with the edict. It is important to note that some problems were with the edict itself and parts of it, and others were with the idea of what the edict stood for, the emancipation of the serfs. Firstly, land allocations varied, which caused unrest, because not all were equally good, and that meant that some places were insufficient to live on. Secondly, the rights of the serfs still remained theoretical, and while they existed, their actual effectiveness was still questionable. The redemption payments that the serfs had to pay led to further unrest as they didn't like the idea of paying for their human right to freedom. In keeping with problems with land allocations, the land prices varied based on their sufficiency, and so not everyone could pay for the land that they were forced to live on. Again, it was hard for serfs to make a living without having access to pastures and such. The serfs also lost the landowner's protection, which in some cases was useful. All in all, the serfs were very resentful. This meant that there were 647 riots in the space of only four months. So now let's move on to the revolutions of 1905. One of the most important revolutions of 1905, and the one that really started it all, was Bloody Sunday. 
So it follows logically that we should start with discussing that. Bloody Sunday took place on January 22nd, 1905 in St. Petersburg. It was the first clash between the parties. Working-class citizens really led the revolt and were fought against by soldiers loyal to the Tsar. The protesters were made up of artillery workers and factory workers in Putlyov. They were marching to the Winter Palace to protest Tsar Nicholas II, whom they felt didn't understand their wants or needs. While the protesters were unarmed, they carried signs with pictures of the Tsar singing the Russian national anthem, which supported monarchy and loyalty to the Tsar, saying, God save the Tsar. <clears throat> the protest was led by an Orthodox priest named Gregory Gapon. Gregory was not a revolutionary leader, but was the leader of the Assembly of Russian Factory Workers. He was there in order to organize and curb their dissatisfaction with working conditions and low wages in a productive manner. It is important to note that the Winter Palace is giant and steeped in wealth. By attempting to storm the Winter Palace, the crowds wanted to draw attention to the fact that they were starving while the Tsar was held up in riches. Again, this is a theme that we see throughout history. Political leaders oft make the mistake of isolating themselves from their countrymen in lavish castles, like Versailles, as well as the Shahs in Iran. The movement was patronized by the police, who heard word of it, as Gapon was also an informant of theirs. What started out as a peaceful protest with marches towards the square in St. Petersburg quickly escalated to live up to its namesake. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. The protesters were convinced that the Tsar would sympathize with them if only he saw them in person as a peaceful group and not what he was led to believe. However, he didn't want to give up the monarchy. And so, instead of staying to talk to the group that he knew was coming from the police informing him the night before, he and his family fled to their second palace. You know, like their country or summer palace. Their home away from home. Before he left, though, he ordered that his police and ministers deal with whatever problems arise in his absence. Well, sure enough, one arose. And sure enough, they dealt with it. The police and civil servants were terrified of even peaceful protests. They were scared that it would threaten the monarchy and therefore themselves too. The protesters represented a larger issue at play and were merely a microcosmic example of the discontent that continued to rise over Russia regarding low wages, long workdays, and increased taxes due to the Russo-Japanese war. Gapon, as part of organizing the protest, had people sign the petition and ask for these problems to be rectified with an eight-hour workday max minimum daily wage a minimum daily wage of 1 ruble or the equivalent of 50 cents and the institution of a representative democratically elected parliament like the majlis in iran 135000 signatures were on the paper and all of these were planned to be presented to the tsar to show that they were peaceful when they got to the winter palace they never made it though as discontent continued to rise prior to Bloody Sunday due to rising taxes, lack of food, and horrible working conditions, the government officials grew more and more worried. On the day that the protest was set to take place, 
the government decided that they were too scared of the rising upset and therefore uprisings that they needed to stop the dissension. They decided to act preventatively and not reactionarily in order to reestablish autocratic rule. As the masses started their march towards the Winter Palace, signs in hand, ready to discuss with the Tsar, the police rode out on their horses to meet them. Both parties moving steadily towards one another until they met. There was a moment, and then the police opened fire onto the crowd. It was estimated that in minutes, anywhere from a hundred to a thousand people were violently murdered without provocation. The rest fled. The police had got what they wanted. They had re-established autocratic rule. But it was only the first battle. How did the Tsar react to hearing this tragic news? Shockingly, but certainly not surprisingly, while he did mention the event in his diary, it was a long slide and slighted by his parents and family coming to visit him. You know, of course it makes sense to reflect on seaside fun that you and your nieces and nephews had instead of being concerned with the trivial matter of a massacre back in your country. Of course. Despite this, it was still a cataclysmic event that involved everyone in one way or another. Firstly, the government lost control and Russia dissolved into anarchy. More strikes ensued. The most impactful ones were made up of students, civil servants, peasants, and servants. By the end of January, 400,000 plus people were on strike. This number rose up to 2.5 million just by later that year. It was found that non-Russian territories were affected the most, like the Lutz insurrection in Poland and the issues in Finland and the Baltics. Nationalist thoughts among non-Russians furthered hostility against the government, like in Bessarabia, where anti-Semitic and far-right ideals were used to create an organization in support of the monarchy. Meanwhile, the Russo-Japanese War was still going on, and the Russians were not doing well. This worsened tensions even more, especially after the disastrous Battle of Mukdam, where Tsar Nicholas II sent Baltic fleets to fight, and they were destroyed completely and utterly. After this, they had to sue for peace, and this further worsened tensions. At this time, workers started to organize, and they staged attacks on wealthy landowners. While the liberal middle class were typically passive supporters, they too did not like what the Tsar was doing. In spring, one million peasants struck St. Petersburg, with workers' strikes and terrorist groups aligned to take down the government. There are a couple of assassinations as well that proved particularly influential. Firstly, it was the assassination of the Grand Duke Sergei of Russia, and secondly, the assassination of the Minister of War. More unrest spread across the country until its peak in summer, with central Russia, Ukraine, Baltic provinces, Poland, and Caucasus. All of them were strikes with re struck with strikes, rebellions, and mutinies. A mutiny that was particularly influential was a mutiny of the battleship Potikin, the battleship of Potikin, on the Bal Black Sea Fleet. The crew attacked and killed seven out of eighteen of the officers on board. 
This showed Tsar Nicholas that even his loyal troops were turning on him, and as a result, industry and production in Russia slowed. Prices and taxes rose. Inflation and economic unrest ensued. This prompted more revolts. Fourteen people became the Union of Unions under Pavel Milyorkov, which was trying to appease the crowd, but didn't actually do a lot. So the Union of Unions was essentially like Majlis. It was the government's way of trying to appease the unrest that was rising. But again, it didn't really do a lot. They wanted a representative government and constitutional reform like in Iran. They voiced ideas in universities, which became central in movements, as the students, as we've already talked about, were very influential. Other Marxist and socialist parties represented masses, not just the middle class. Russian Social Democratic Labour Party in 19, 1898 was split between the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks. This was also very important. It was made up of Trotsky, Lenin, and Stalin. However, there is not a lot of cohesion left between the, between the two, so it, it made it hard to organize a full revolution and made their powers more limited. That's why this show is called the Fickle Sickle. The sickle is a sign of communism which is really what this revolution is about. And the fickle comes from the fact that there were so many different subsects of people trying to rebel against the government. And this made the revolution particularly harder to, to succeed as there was no cohesion and no organization. Everyone had slightly different things that they wanted to change and disagreed on little things. We will discuss that and more in the next episode of The Fickle Sickle. Hi, and welcome back to The Fickle Sickle the podcast show that examines the development of the Russian Revolution through the lens of why and result. I'm your host, Grace Kite, and on today's episode, we will be talking about communism, the Bolsheviks, the Romanovs, the Mensheviks, and we will be talking about World War I and the effects of World War I. First, we will be talking about World War One and the effects of World War One. In order to fully understand the effects of World War One on Russia and the Russian Revolution, first we need to understand what the environment of Russia is like at this time. As we've talked about, there's already an intense drive for modernization. And although this is lessened a bit after Alexander I is no longer the Tsar, it's, there's still economic disparities and there's still a lot of industrial catching up with other big European powerhouses. And there is con- a continual need for modernization. Now let's talk a little bit about what the climate was like in Europe in 1913. So... Russia basically is protecting the Slavs a lot against Austria-Hungary, and this is where most disputes stem from. Austria is also controlling Bosnia. 
and in, 19, in 1908, so this continues the tensions between them. And Russia has a lot of at stake when Archduke Ferdinand is assassinated because of pan-Slavism and because he, they are protecting the Slavs. For 50 or 60 years prior to the start of World War I, Russia's foreign policy has been looking for success, and we see that through a lot of the wars that we talked about pre previously, the Russo-Japanese War, the Russo-Turkey War, and also the Crimean War. So they didn't find success in South or Central Asia in the Russo-Japanese War, or in Turkey in the Russo-Turkey War. They do win, but they don't win as well as they want to, and so they don't really get to so showcase, showcase their military power. So essentially they're not showing a strong militarized industrial front, which is really what they want to put off. And so for them, World War I is an opportunity in some ways, and we will get into this more, to really show that front that they have not been able to do up until this point. However, at the start of World War I, around 1913, 1914, Russia had a really bad military. As we've talked about previously, their Baltic and their Pacific navies were completely destroyed by the Japanese. Most of the countries that chose to get involved in World War I did so because of nationalism and patriotism. And for Tsar Nicholas, he also was interested in these things. But on top of that, he wanted to show that Russia was powerful and to fix the damage by the ja that essentially against the Japanese that had been done to them. Um, and Lenin doesn't like this. And he's very, very vocal about this because and this is a common idea that's filtering throughout Europe at this time. But that this is going to be a war fought by working class people versus working class people not for working class people, but with the idea and the intention of being commanded by nobility. This is a war of old social order. And as a time where I, new ideas are starting to revolve around Russia, this does not sit well with many people. And so there's a lot of sort of revolts across the entire war, war effort that speak out against this. The Soviets, who are sort of formed in 1905, and the Bolsheviks in particular were both very influential in speaking out against this. The Bolsheviks tried to get activists to sort of sow the seeds of dissent in the army, and the Soviets were made up a lot of factory workers and army representatives, and so both were very important in getting the army behind with fighting this idea of fighting for nobility. Russia does not do well in World War One and fails particularly to Germany. Russia was sort of under the impression that they had an army of peasants who would somehow just overcome everybody, but they didn't have the trained soldiers, they didn't have the resources, they, there were food shortages, there were rebellions, they just didn't have the military tactics and strategies needed to win the war. And so it actually ended up going very, very badly for them. Building off of the idea of rebellions due to food shortages, in the winter and to spring of 1916-1970, there was a big rebellion because of the food shortages that people in the army didn't have. Um, and this, as we will talk about later, was actually very influential and very important um, and sort of set the really showed the way that the tide was turning for Russia. 
food prices at this time went up by 500%, which caused really, really bad inflation and therefore even more economic problems. At this point, what was once supposed to be the silver lining for Russia just made the cloud darker and darker, and there was no way to rectify it. Russia was digging themselves into a deeper, deeper hole. Russia also had really bad trouble with transportation. So overall, the, the fact of the matter was that Russia had nothing in this war. They were so far gone at this point, and they had nothing that was really holding them down. And their continued trying to commit the war just furthered the riots back on the home front. There were two really bad battles that Russia lost terribly, and they lost terribly both times to the Germans. So the first battle was the Battle of Musserian Lakes. The second was the Battle of Tannenberg. And again, the Germans completely crushed them. So as a response to this, Nicholas II takes full military control and on, on August 22nd, 1915. There were a couple reasons why he did this. Um, firstly, he was scared for the crown. So he did not want anybody else risking the crown that he had. Um, again, showing into the themes that we see with Nicholas, who just wants to sort of reestablish his autocratic rule and does not like the idea of democracy coming to play. Also, he was still relatively well-liked at this time, although there had been a lot of mutinies in the Navy um, prior to this, and around 1905, due to Bloody Sunday. At this point, he was still pretty well-liked by the army. Um, and also, he felt that it was his patriotic duty to get involved. And so that those were the reasons why he really got involved. But in my personal opinion, I think that it was mainly because he was scared for the crown. The last thing that's important to know about Tsar Nicholas really taking charge of the military endeavors was that he was now personally associated with Russia's setbacks. So if Russia failed, he failed. If Russia did not do well, people thought it was on him, and it was. So now everything is suddenly being directed even more towards Nicholas and less of the general idea of war. Yes, it is true that Russia was overall not doing well on the at the war at all, but it they didn't completely fail. They did win a couple of battles. In 1916, they won the Bustelov Offensive against Austria. And this was sort of important because Nicholas was directing this. So it showed, it sort of restored a little bit of faith in him. Um, it didn't last very long, but it wasn't immediately people gave up on on him, um, and that is sort of important. While Nicholas was in charge of the army, he left from St. Petersburg and from the Winter Palace, and the progressive bloc tried to make a cabinet to sort of rule Russia in his absence, but Nicholas did not like this at all, and so he takes down takes away the progressive bloc, um, and a lot of people were annoyed by this, um, and essentially, like, in the fundamentalist laws, he says that 
if he is not able to be in power and a suitable man is not able to either at this point his son is very sick and so therefore not able to take the crown at the moment um he would appoint his wife so his wife alexandra who's right now under the deep influence of rasputin um essentially she's obsessed with um helping her son who as we talked about is sick um and rasputin sort of quote-unquote helps this um and so she takes power and therefore in conjunction because of her obsession with Rasputin, he also has a certain amount of power. So it's really Alexandra and Rasputin who are ruling Russia at this point. And both of their behaviors were very erratic. She was very concerned about um, her son and she was very obsessed with trying to make him better. And Rasputin was therefore always employed to try and make that happen um and therefore even more chaos ensued yes it would have been there regardless but their erratic behaviors prompted more chaos the spring of 1917 was really the culmination of all the discontent and the dissent that had been seen in the winter of 1916 that we talked about briefly um and there's a lot, a lot of riots and also International Women's Day takes place. And there's something that's particularly interesting is when soldiers are told to take down the protesters, they actually show up in solidarity and they refuse to shoot the protesters, showing that really the Tsar has nobody on his side at that at this point. So because of all the discontent that is happening in the spring, Alexandra finally tells Nicholas, dude, you have got to come back. So Nicholas finally decides that he's going to come back. So he gets on the train, but he never meets, he never reaches St. Petersburg. He is forced to abdicate the throne on the train to St. Petersburg. And that's the end of Nicholas's reign. Overall, World War I is particularly influential because it exacerbated problems that were there to begin with. It worsened the money that, that Russia had. It depleted the military power even more. It furthered anger by the priorities that it, it set out that Russia prioritized, um, not prioritizing the people and the soldiers, but prioritizing Nicholas trying to continue to reestablish his autocratic rule and it also created more problems so overall russia's decision to enter world war one completely backfired on them and we'll talk about this more later now here's where it really gets interesting we're going to now be talking about Lenin, Trotsky, the Bolsheviks, the Mensheviks, what the climate was like, what the, the February 1917 revolution, and then also the October revolution. This is the meat of the matter. Let's get into it. Let's start by talking about Trotsky. Trotsky was born Lev Bronstein in Ukraine in 1879. He had a very expensive education. Their father was a wealthy landowner and he was a model student. 
so his family was very well off. He wasn't involved or interested in politics till meeting the People's Will Party. The People's Will Party was a radical group responsible for Tsar Alexander II's assassination. So after meeting them, he left his studies to live with them and become a worker. He abandoned everything of wealth that he had previously known, except for his glasses, which became his trademark. In the People's Will Party, he organized workers' meetings and started a newspaper called Our Cause. This led to his two-year arrest and imprisonment in 1898. After prison, he was exiled in Siberia. While in prison, he really started to shift his ideas towards Marxism, and in Siberia, he read Lenin's work, The Development of Capitalism in Russia. He tried to see how Marxist theories would fit into that, whether in the form of a revolt or reforming the system. To further explore this, he escaped from his exile to London, leaving his wife and daughters. This was in 1902. He then met with Lenin in London. Lenin was born Vladimir Ulyanov in 1870 to conservative parents. So while he didn't have the same sort of mindset growing up as Trotsky did, his brother was a very, very radical socialist who was tried and killed for trying to kill Alexander II. He did study law, but he was much more interested in Marxism and so debated a lot about class struggles and the future of capitalism in Russia during his time at college. He was one of the only revolutionaries who did not believe in the inevitable revolution. He did, however, think that Germany was the prime ally in a proletarian uprising. In 1893, he moved to St. Petersburg and published an illegal Marxist papers. Then he traveled all around Europe to discuss different Marxist theories with international Marxist. He was funded by his mother. When he returned, he too was arrested and exiled in Siberia. In 1900, after completing his Siberian exile, he left Russia to raise funds for his Marxist newspaper that he created. He went all over, then to London where he met Trotsky. He liked Trotsky's dedication and knowledge of Marxist theory and gave him a job as an editor in his newspaper. He also wrote political articles for the newspaper. The newspaper's goal was a second Congress of Russian Socialist Democratic Labour Party, with Lenin and the editors, including Trotsky, in charge. However, his plans for having leaders showed to Trotsky that Lenin had an autocratic ambition, and Trotsky did not like that. He thought that this would make people fear Lenin and so alienate people. This was proved to be right in the Congress of 1903, where people were split into Lenin's, who went to the Bolsheviks, and Trotsky, who went to the Mensheviks. The Mensheviks believed that working class people needed guidance, but not a leader. Trotsky was an idealist, so he called for a peaceful revolution and cooperative organization. Lenin was practical, though, and wanted, alongside the Bolsheviks, a violent revolution led by him.
1917, there was the February Revolution. This was very important in solidifying the ideas of the different parties. While ultimately unsuccessful, it did do a lot to sort of further party ideals. Many people, many revolutionaries had come from exile, and many groups became public. The Mensheviks and the Soviet revolutionaries took over the Soviets. Mensheviks were the, ne the next and the most powerful in Petrograd Soviet party, and they wanted peace from World War I. Bolsheviks came in and started getting involved in March, um, and they instead wanted to revolutionize the socialist movement. That summer, the government was destabilized by an offensive, and it was swinging left at this point. And despite disagreeing with Lenin, Trotsky ultimately joined the Bolsheviks, and the socialist revolutionaries split into the left and the right. The left supported the Bolsheviks. However, there were further divisions between them when the Bolsheviks failed to take over the government in July. Also, Lenin was called a traitor and so forced to flee to Finland and left Trotsky in charge. Trotsky was in charge and Lenin was fearing for his life. Several months passed. September, the government made the mistake of giving the army and tens of thousands of Bolsheviks and socialist revolutionaries armor and ammunition to fight off the coup. Given all of this new weaponry, Lenin called an overthrow of government. In October, the Military Revolutionary Committee was formed, and days later, the Second Revolution took place and was successful, with barely any opposition. This meant that there was a complete dismantlement of everything that had been before, and there was now this new power play to see who would get to be in charge. Lenin had a very clear idea of what he wanted for the government, and so when given the choice of allying with other socialist parties and collaborating and being a small fish in a big pond, he instead chose to try and fight off any opposition that he and the Bolsheviks may have and to solely take that power for himself. So where's Trotsky in all of this, you might be asking? Lenin was imperative in the revolution, and it couldn't have gone forth without him. However, Trotsky was really his right-hand man, and although they disagreed on a lot, Lenin couldn't have got the power that he ended up having without Trotsky. Trotsky was in the background, and really important in organizing and having the left SRs side with what Lenin wanted. So they achieved full power. Also, while Lenin was still fearing for his life, Trotsky spearheaded and stormed and took over Petrograd. However, Trotsky wasn't someone who needed the power, because he believed so strongly in the revolution that his personal power was nothing compared to it. So whenever Trotsky did hold power, he automatically abdicated it to Lenin. And Trotsky thought of it as a communal revolution, and so ceded his personal power for honor in the Bolshevik ranks. Now, Germany is very influential in all of this, and Germany and Lenin are basically allied in what they want. They have the same interests, and they want the same things for Russia. This is during 1917, and the Brest-Litovsk uh, Treaty is formed. 
and Germany is funding Lenin and the Bolsheviks in whatever they're doing in this treaty. Both Germany and Lenin wanted peace on the Eastern Front, and they also wanted the dissolving of the Russian army. Now, why Germany wanted this is really quite obvious, because if Russia didn't have an army, although it still wasn't the strongest, they would still have less people to fight during World War I. So this made a lot of sense to Germany. However, for Lenin, Lenin thought that having the army would be very dangerous to him. And Trotsky did agree with this, although Trotsky did not agree with um, having peace on the Eastern Front. And Trotsky wasn't the only one. While um, Germany was the Bolsheviks and Lenin personally their biggest supporter, many and most other Russian socialists, including Trotsky, as we talked about, did not agree with what Lenin wanted for Russia. So Lenin and Germany are talking about the possibilities of a peace treaty. And as we talked about, most other socialists did not like this, but Lenin was still going forward with it. But Lenin didn't want the talk and the discussions of this peace treaty to be negotiated in a neutral country, because he thought that if international socialists were going to be able to convince a party not of um, peace, but of wanting global a global workers' revolt, and saw it happening there. There were revolts all over the world, but nowhere near the scale needed to pull off. A global revolution. Lenin wanted peace without annexations because the noble leaders who they hated and who were the ones who really started the war began it, they saw, for territorial gain. And so they wanted to resist this and so they did not want any annexations through the peace. However, if Germany refused peace, then there would be a revolution. Even if the Bolsheviks in Russia were destroyed, it was thought that a world revolution would begin, and so it was worth the risk. Trotsky spearheaded the peace talks, and this was important because he had taken no money from Germany, unlike Lenin. So he was sort of considered an impartial party. Um, however, he was told to delay talks because the revolution was going to come. In January, Germany laid out all of their plans in their terms of the peace treaty. And they said that they wanted to take 150,000 square kilometers of Russian land. The Petrograd Soviets were enraged. They were under the impression that this peace treaty would have no annexations. And so they were very, very mad. Some voted for the war and others walked. Lenin was losing his control. Trotsky, again as an idealist, sided for not war nor peace. He sort of thought of the idea of this would give them time to organize the Red Army. Once Lenin realized he was losing supporters, he quickly switched his ideals. At this point, he was no longer arguing for peace through a treaty because he thought that a treaty could just be ripped up and abandoned whenever they wanted. So he said, okay, let's sign this treaty, right? But let's do it to give us time as a respite. Let's do it to give us time to organize the Red Army. And if it's so presented that they did need to fight Germany and they did need to fight this war, then this would have given them time 
to organize and to strengthen their army. And then, at that point, they could just abandon the treaty and fight. Overall, he just wanted to sign the peace treaty now, as a temporary place taker. However, Germany was very, very strong, and they were showing their power all over the world, and on the Eastern Front in particular, when negotiations were too slow for them. So, the idea of really having the Russian army, which wasn't the best, come and take over Germany, which was the best, sort of was not very realistic. On February 24th, the vote took place about the peace treaty. And many from the left were sad. They were crying. They felt obligated to vote for peace. Lenin ended up getting the majority. But no one actually wanted to sign the treaty. Trotsky even threatened to resign. Finally, Grigory Sokolnikov agreed to sign it. Lenin kept the treaty conditions secret until March 7th, when he finally talked about it. And they were horrible. Russia ended up losing 780,000 square kilometers, 56 million people, two-thirds of coal, iron, and steel production, and 40% of the workers that were the basis of the revolution to begin with. Lenin said that it was the only way, though. However, he alienated Bolsheviks and provoked Allied intervention, and helped Germany a lot. Lenin said if Germany were to win World War I, a revolutionary war would follow. So then, what was the point? They lost so much of their power. If that did happen, then their ability to defeat Germany would be lessened so much. But Lenin also said if Germany lost, then the agreement was considered null and void, and the Allies would do an intervention. So regardless, war was coming, and they needed an army, one way or another. However, Lenin had completely lessened their chances of being able to fight off their war. So all that they had was famine, starvation, and the beginnings of a civil war. Okay, now let's talk about communism and socialism and Marxism and how they fit into all of this. These are the ideas that really shaped the revolution, and so it's important to understand what they were, how they differed, and what they stood for. So capitalism is pretty much understood, but socialism, we don't really know too much about. So during the Russian Revolution, uh, Lenin, Trotsky, none of them really wanted um, capitalism at all. That was the entire point of it. They were trying to dissolve capitalism and they were trying to dissolve the monarchy that the Tsar was sort of inflicting on all of them. Um, as we can see this through, you know, they wanted this because of food shortages. They wanted this because the workers didn't have well, good conditions and lots of wages and etc. So we've talked about all of the reasons why they wanted a change, but now let's talk about it specifically what this change meant. So there are two different sections of ideologies. There's socialism and there's capitalism. Under socialism, there's communism. Under communism, there's two types 
of communism, anarchism, and Marxism, traditional classical Marxism. Under classical Marxism, there's orthodox Marxism. So Karl Marx died before he could finish completing his work. So orthodox Marxism really tried to continue what he was standing for. However, there's also under the category of classical Marxism, there's revisionary Marxism. And revisionary Marxism sort of goes between socialism and capitalism. So it does have some capitalistic ideas. So it's been so revised that it does have some capitalistic ideas in it. And under rev uh, revisionary Marxism, there's social democracy. Social democracy is completely under capitalism. However, under orthodox Marxism and sort of revisionary Marxism, the side of revisionary Marxism that isn't actually capitalism is uh, democratic socialism. And this we can see in places like Sweden nowadays. So social democracy and democratic socialism are often conflicted and conflated with each other. However, they are very, very different. Social democracy are, advocates for capitalism and completely does not like the idea of socialism. However, uh, democratic socialism loves the idea of socialism but hates the idea of capitalism. Now, under... Um, democratic socialism and orthodox Marxism. There's also Leninism and Trotskyism and a bunch of other subsects categories of that. Those are all sort of the same, so we don't need to go into depth on how they really differ. So, as we know, Trotsky and Lenin really got their foundation and their ideas for um, what they were advocating for from Karl Marx and from Marxism. So, Marxism, as we know, is under communism and it's with anarchy. However, anarchy and Marxism really diverge at this point. And so anarchy advocates for capitalism to go straight into communism, right? However, Marxism advocates for a transitionary stage between capitalism and communism, and this would be socialism. And we'll go more into depth as to what socialism is and what communism is in specific. Um, but it's important to understand that this is what their ideas were based on. So Lenin and Trotsky's ideas were based in Marxism. However, before coming to power, they were really advocating for something that was like socialism. As we talked about, the socialist revolutionaries were, the left side of the socialist revolutionaries did side with the Bolsheviks. So socialism, quote, is defined as uh, tr trying to achieve the state of a society in which the means of production, distribution, and exchange are owned by the community as a whole rather than private individuals. However, once Lenin got to power, he established a five-year plan. This was the first five-year plan. The second five-year plan did end up being carried out, and that was by Stalin later. This five-year plan did not end up being carried out. It set up targets and committees for all production throughout Russia. It was in order to reorder the economy. It was used to reconstruct Soviet economy to transform people. It did not go forth, but it still cohered with communist ideas, and so other ideas did fit it. This really demonstrated that Lenin was acting under communist ideas. So socialism had contracted to the ideas of communism. But what exactly is communism? As we talked about, communism is under socialism. However, it 
expands upon socialism. It's not just the means of production, distribution, and exchange, but it's everything. It's stateless, moneyless, and classless. A communist state is slightly different. It's a socialist state ruled by a communist party. So the USSR was ruled, was a, was a socialist state, but it was ruled by a communist party. So this is sort of more what we are talking about. However, while Lenin was trying to carry out these ideas, it was made difficult by the civil war and unrest that was taking place, where people were trying to restore the old regime. Eventually, Lenin died, and through a power struggle between Trotsky and Stalin, Stalin ended up taking power. Stalin was someone who believed in communism, but he took it to the next level. It was essentially communism on steroids, to the point where it became a dictatorship, where everything was controlled. And this is where people typically see the downfall of communism. They might not disagree with the idea, but they disagree with the fact that this is really an example of how it was carried out. And Stalin took it to extremes, extremes that they do not agree with, extremes that many people do not agree with, extremes that cost so many people their lives. That's it for today's episode. Come back next week to hear about what this effect and this result really was on Russia and the rest of the world. show that examines the development of the Russian Revolution through the lens of why and result. I'm your host Grace Kite and on today's episode we will be talking about the result of the Russian Revolution through the terror of Stalin, McCarthyism, the Cold War, and what ensued from it. by talking about the reign of terror that Stalin made. Stalin was a dictator. He was born into poverty. He had a tough childhood and so therefore was drawn to radical movements. He was imprisoned a lot. All of this created anger and animosity towards his country. Lenin died in 1924 and Stalin used manipulation tactics to gain power. Through this, he created the second five-year plan, which was in fact successful. The ideas of the second year plan were similar to the first. It made Russia the second largest industrial economy in the world. However, if you didn't comply with what he wanted, you went to a labor camp or you were killed. Tens of millions of people died. He increased food, but then made man-made famine. Stalin was a manipulator. He used terror and killing and the threat of death to make people comply with what he wanted. He was very, very ambitious. So a little bit about this. At the beginning of World War II, Hitler and Stalin signed a non-aggression pact. But then Hitler invaded the USSR, and so this pact was created null and void. However, he underestimated Stalin. Stalin was emotionless. For instance, Germans gave kids bread if they got water for them, then, on their way back, Stalin killed them. 
He killed the kids. He killed the kids. 20 million people died in World War II on top of the tens of millions of people that Stalin murdered. Stalin also created the KGB, the Soviet labor camps, and executions. Despite all of this, despite all of this, some people liked him and thought he was successful. And in some ways he was. Stalin set out to create a massive and master economy. And he did do that. He made the USSR a global superpower. But in doing that, so many people lost their lives. Livelihood was completely destroyed in the USSR and many people had to flee and escape. There was a price to be paid for the power that he made. So now that we know a little bit about who Stalin was and the ideas that he had and believed in, it's time to talk about the Cold War. The Cold War was basically a war fought between the USSR and the USA. The USSR believed in Soviet Marxism and the USA believed in capitalism. So basically, it was a war of Soviet Marxism versus capitalism. However, this ended up affecting the entire world. Soviets saw the US rebuilding in Europe and Japan after World War II as the US expanding markets. This was true, but they thought that the expanding markets was the US trying to have global reign and glo global capitalism. The USSR wanted to combat this and make global communism. The US feared that the USSR wanted to destroy capitalism and its institutions. The Soviets feared that US was taking over the world and destroying socialism. Both were right. Because of this, they decided to enter into a war. However, for the one of the first times in history, they both had nuclear capabilities. And we'll go more into this later, but this became very, very important in the Cold War. So we've talked about Stalin's reign of terror and how he made the USSR a global superpower. And because of this, it is often described as there being an iron curtain. After World War II, USSR had domination over all of the countries, basically, in East Europe, after the Red Army defeated the Nazis there. So this is what it means by the Iron Curtain. Stalin doesn't trust the US and the Great Britain during World War II because invading Europe. So this is really where um, these tensions start to lie and where the Cold War's sort of uh, battle starts to really form. It is also important to note that while the US is really strong right now, the USSR is rebuilding after destruction from World War II. So while the US is expanding all over Europe, the USSR is trying to rebuild their army. Um, Germany is therefore divided into East and West. And inside of Germany, then Berlin is divided into East and West. So Berlin lies in East Germany. Then in 1961, the USSR built the Berlin Wall overnight around West Germany. The U.S. tried to combat this via containment of communism, i.e. things like the Marshall Plan and creating NATO. Well, the Cold War itself was really destructive and caused a lot of deaths and unnecessary harm in Germany and in Berlin specifically, it's also important to talk about the effects of the Cold War. One of the biggest effects of these was a nuclear arms race that resulted of the Cold War which has impacts that exist to this day. 
The reason why the Cold War wasn't actually a typical war, per se, was because of mutually assured destruction. At this point, both the U.S. and the USSR had nuclear capabilities. This meant that neither wanted to destroy each other, which meant that it was mutually assured destruction. If either of them set off a nuclear bomb, the other one would be affected, and it would mean death to both of them. So therefore, there was no direct nuclear response. While there were some threats to this, one of the biggest being in 1916-2, the Cuban Missile Crisis, overall mutually assured destruction remained sound. But let's talk specifically about the countries that were really affected at this time. So because of the Cold War, the Korean and Vietnam War were really starting and starting to come to pass. And it was really a battle, again, between capitalism and communism. Because the Cold War took place, a lot of other countries saw this as an opportunity to battle capitalism or communism, depending on whichever one they wanted. So the Vietnam also was highly influencing Japan. Japan was a newly U.S capitalistic country and so therefore their their influence expanded over to there as well um another country that was extremely important and has impacts to this day was a war in afghanistan now it's sort of hard to tell what the winner was in afghanistan but a lot everything that happened in afghanistan caused a large amount of people to join the Taliban, which we know as a really destructive terrorist organization, which had even further impacts. So as we can see, this is a ripple effect. So everything that I'm talking about right now, all these wars that are created from the Cold War and from the even before the Cold War, from Soviet Marxism versus capitalism, has ripple effects that affect people throughout history. So we see deaths and destruction throughout all of these paths that this battle has taken. Also, in Nicaragua, El Salvador, Guatemala, etc., all of these countries, the U.S. tried to support and them not becoming a communist state, and it completely destroyed their government. So there's more violence, there's more destruction, etc. In addition to these countries that the U.S. government completely destabilized, there was also the Iranian coup and the Chilean, Chilean coup, which the U.S. administered, and which also had lots of more death and destruction. However, the Soviets weren't free of this effect. In Hungary and Czechoslovakia, there were uprisings against communism, but the Soviets violently stopped these. Again, this means more death and more destruction. In fact, this was a battle that was affecting the entire world so much that the world was divided into three parts, into three worlds. The first world was U.S., Western Europe, and any place with capitalism and democracy. The second world was the Soviet Union, Warsaw Pact nations, China, and Cuba. And the third world was everyone else. Both the U.S. and the USSR did not want third world countries to be neutral in this, so they forced them to take a side on capitalism or communism through violence and coercion. At first, it looked like the USSR would win this battle because the U.S. was not doing well with civil rights on the home front and dictatorship along the other countries that it was taking over. But ultimately, Soviet ideas failed by leading to famine through collective agriculture, suppression of dissent through wanting the same thing, and many more reasons. Soviets also failed because they couldn't keep up with the economic growth 
through and through the lens of censorship, people realized how much poorer and worse off the second world was after this lens was lifted. Once this happened, there was a result of the destruction and the downfall of communism through all of the places that the Soviet Union had previously held with the Iron Curtain. In Berlin, the wall was taken down. In Poland, the Gdansk Workers' Union thrived. 99 out of 100 seats that they wanted in, part, in government, they got. In Hungary, there were multiple party elections at last. In Czechoslovakia, it split into the Czech Republic and Slovakia. However, there were also more violent uh, takings away of communism in Romania, Romania and Yugoslavia. So while communism was destroyed throughout the world, the U.S. also had problems on the home front with it. So we've talked specifically about how the U.S. didn't want communism to filter through the rest of the world, but this didn't stop them from wanting it not to happen in their own country. And so there was a large rise of what's called the McCarthyism era. McCarthyism, in effect, was like a boiled-down version of what was happening in the USSR, which actually proved the two countries' similarities and how they carried out what they wanted. There was a lot of fear, and McCarthyism is also compared to the Salem witch trials, how people would accuse one another and they would be put on trial and sentenced to years in prison, or they, in some cases, there were killings. So the fact of the matter is, that things weren't better one way or another with capitalism or with communism. There were still people who were harmed, there was still death, there was still destruction, and there was no way to get around it. The Russian Revolution was widespread. Its results affected the entire world. Its ideas infected everybody. When we say we don't like the ideas of socialism or communism, most of the time, we're not saying that because we don't actually like the ideas. We don't like how they were carried out. We don't like the result of them. We don't like the destruction, the death, the fear that resulted. So the Russian Revolution was imperative and affected many, many aspects of the world that we see today. It was the creation of a union. It was, it really showcased why people couldn't separate and had to unite as a union. The Russian Revolution would have been so much more successful had there not been so many subsects of different groups. We talked about socialism, we talked about communism, we talked about Marxism, we talked about anarchism, we talked about so many different aspects, so many different mindsets of this, and there were groups for each of these subsects. There were subsects of these groups. And so because of that, there's a lack of unity. There's a lack of cohesion. There was a lack of a common idea. And that, in essence, really was what failed the revolution. Thanks again for tuning into The Fickle Sickle. I hoped you learned something, I hoped you enjoyed it, and I hope it gave you an understanding as to how the Russian Revolution fit into the world we live in. For the last time, I'm your host Grace Kite, and this was The Fickle Sickle. <laughs>